It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And I've got some really timely guests on this podcast. Which was recorded back in April. Professor Tamara Hervey, Professor of European Law at Sheffield University, Senior Fellow at UK and Changing Europe, and expert in all things health and EU. And Dr Philippa Whitford MP, SNP Health Spokesperson at Westminster, an actual doctor. She's back working for the NHS, as well as fulfilling her MP duties at the moment. And though she insists she's doing nothing heroic, I think whatever your political or Brexit persuasion at the moment, you have to doff your cap to her and those like her who are stepping up and getting back into the fray. So we started talking about her experience of rejoining the NHS at this time of crisis. What's your experience been of it then? you know, in terms of the NHS being prepared and, and coping with, with what's come down the track or perhaps in Scotland, what is still to come down the track? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we are probably a few weeks behind uh, London. I think for us, in a way, the lockdown came kind of early enough to make an impact. I think it could have done with coming early. Um, but obviously, the coming out of the curve will be much slower than the kind of rise into it. Um, And so we still have kind of quite a long way to go. Um, But being back in the NHS, I'm back in the hospital I worked in for nearly 20 years. So it's kind of a wee bit strange, but lovely, you know, lots of well-kent faces and so on. But I think, you know, people are working at such an amazing speed. You know, the, the good thing that has come out of it is increasing the use of tech but also just barriers that are falling that would normally take you years. If you were remodeling services, it would take you ages to break out of all of those silos, whereas actually, literally from critical care to home care, you know, it is a team. And, and, and that's the promise we need to be able to make to people. We will look after you wherever you are, and we will do our best to do that. And in terms of the politics of it, um, you know, clearly you understand these things better than the man in the street, because, as you say, you've worked in the NHS and, uh, and obviously you've worked in Westminster as well. Uh, what's your, your feeling as, in terms of perhaps both Westminster and Hollywood, although I know they've tried to at least give the impression they're, they're sort of in lockstep. Um, has the response been enough? Was it, was it soon enough? Was it been competent? Um, I think there was a lot of time wasted at the beginning. I'm not sure when uh, the Scottish government were getting kind of full access to all the data and experts and so on. But, you know, it's become clear from articles that have come out recently that the UK government were warned about mid-January about the scale that this could be. And yet there was not evidence of huge action until mid-March, other than telling us to wash our hands. So for me, reading articles, reading the research that was coming out, reading the stuff that was coming out of China, out of the World Health Organization, I would have to say that I found February and March to be my most frustrating time in Westminster so far, in that I was trying to raise issues like getting people to work from home, getting people not to shake hands, raising the issue of asymptomatic spread and being told by Matt Hancock, oh no, that's very rare. Just literally 
putting forward, um, you know, things we should be thinking about or doing and just being either patronized or dismissed. So I found that very frustrating. And then we suddenly got that change in the middle of March. Oh, can you make masks? Can you make ventilators? That that should have been starting way back in, in January. You know, what we should have been doing more of on the upsweep of trying to test, contact trace and isolate and, and the UK as a whole didn't do enough of that for long enough. That is critical to the other end of the curve of getting back out, is making sure that you are on top of every case, that you are isolating people and that you're controlling it. Tomorrow, I mean, you know, Philippa mentions January. There was something going on in January in politics, now, something fairly significant, as I remember. Uh, do you think Brexit did distract from this issue? I don't think there's any evidence that Brexit distracted from the issue. Um, the the European Union's response to COVID-19 has been um, not far enough for those people who are big fans of the European Union, not coordinated enough, um, and has been disparate and um, situation-specific in a way that it needs to be across the EU just as much as it needs to be across the UK in certain ways. What is quite interesting is the way that um, COVID-19 has displaced Brexit from mainstream um, media reporting in mm. the UK. Of course, Brexit is still ongoing. It's a process. We're not finished. Yeah, I suppose maybe that's what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about is, that, is exactly that, is that it's the media coverage, isn't it? In, the, in January, the media was obsessed with Brexit, obviously, and the, and the, the deadline on the 31st of January, when this other story was bubbling up in China in quite a significant way. And perhaps there, there may be something there between how the media and the government are distracted. I don't know which one was distracted or whether one distracted the other. If, I mean, there are, there are broader issues about to what extent is a country able to or advised to tackle issues alone? And to what extent should countries reach agreements to share resources or to share information? Um, those are absolutely germane to the UK's relationship with the EU, just as much as they're germane to the UK's relationship with other countries um, through, for instance, UN organisations like World Health Organisation in terms of tackling COVID-19. So an, an obsession with taking back control looks kind of odd in the context of a global pandemic, which doesn't go, oh, this is a border, oh, I better stop. Hmm. So let's let's try. Uh, it's quite a big question really, to try and figure out how Brexit has interplayed with the coronavirus crisis, because there's all sorts of different aspects to it. But I think, Philippa, you've said that we would have been better placed or we would have handled this better if we were still in the EU. Well, you know, obviously we have the issue that I have challenged a few times, the not taking part in the uh, EU procurement. It's not an either or. You really want to be taking part in as many options to obtain what you need as possible. Now, obviously, like many other things in the EU, it takes an awful long time to get 28 nations to agree what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. Um, but, I, you know, the fact uh, that we had all of the dog at my homework kind of excuses, etc., um, was was pretty poor and in actual fact they missed three different opportunities to take part. One concern I have was also particularly that um, the Secretary of State for Health wasn't taking part in any kind of EU ministerial teleconferencing or discussions 
Um, and it seemed to be only when he was then on a call with the G7 on about the 14th or so of March, um, where he was then hearing directly from Italy about what they were going through and how horrendous it was. Um, and I just wonder if they had been part of that as it was emerging in Italy, emerging in Spain, would there have been an earlier recognition where certainly in the House of Commons statements, what we constantly had was language that implied um, as if Matt Hancock thought Italy's health service was some kind of slightly third worldish kind of health service, whereas actually they've got twice the critical care bed ratio that we have. Um, and, and there was very much a language, even the day it was declared a pandemic, when we had the budget and we were all packed in like sardines, there was still this kind of tourists were coming in, you know, events were still happening in the House of Commons. And it was very much, you know, we didn't change things through two world wars. We're not going to do it now. So there was there was an awful lot of what is the frippery around Brexit that that maybe was getting in the way of actually recognising this isn't going to somehow spare the UK. This is going to affect everybody. And, you know, trying to pull together to to deal with it as much as possible. I mean, we didn't even advise people coming back from mainland China outside Hubei or from northern Italy to self-isolate. And we probably got as many, if not more, cases are due to people coming back from that half-term holiday in February than as were had any connection to, to, to China. So to me, there just seemed to be a lot of opportunities missed and a sort of complacency that this was bad elsewhere because elsewhere was failing um, and wasn't as good as us, rather than actually this is a really horrendous thing and we should be using all our energy to get ready for it. Tamara, what's what's your view on that in terms of, you know, would we have been better placed to, to deal with this if we've been to the EU? Obviously, you've done um, quite a bit of work on EU and health stuff. Well, many of the, the, the things that uh, matter here, we are still part of because it's transition. So we're still part of the early warning response system, for instance. We're still part of um, the European Medicines Agency's um, uh, accelerated uh, clinical trials. We're still part of medical devices law. We're, we're, all of these things still apply because we're, we're in transition. So in terms of the legal position, it, it doesn't make as big a difference as it, as it will at the end of transition. But I, I entirely agree with Philippa in terms of the narrative of the politics. Um, the, the idea that the UK is somehow separate from Europe as opposed to part of Europe is just completely endemic in, in, our, in our entire public discourse. Um, and to ignore geographical proximity and to ignore the way people live their lives, like going skiing in Italy, for instance, is um, really, really unfortunate in, in this context. Do you, uh, I, I don't know, how can I put this without having asking either of you to to cast aspersions on the government, but we lost the email. That was their claim when it came to not joining the, the ventilator scheme. Um, how credible would you say that is as a, uh, a reason? I won't say excuse. I, I, I think it's, it's just not credible. I mean, we, we have a very competent civil service who, who has been part of EU procurement things for decades. 
um, there, there were there were things in in the public domain. People had written in the British Medical Journal in January. That, um, that it, to me, it just isn't credible. Well, we had Matt Hancock on Question Time about ten days before the dog at my homework announcement, um, talking about oh yes, this is being looked at. You know, so the, the, he's the Secretary of State for Health, so kind of saying somehow they didn't know about it because they didn't get the email. I mean, it's, it, it's just nonsense. And while Tamara's absolutely right that we are still have access to many of the pieces of functionality of the EU, you still have to choose to use them. And Matt Hancock simply did not choose to be on a video call or in a room with other EU health ministers or be engaging with the EU Centre for Disease Control. Things that might have given us, uh, if you like, a bit of a shock into reality of what was coming. I don't want to personalise it, but I'm getting the, fa- getting the idea you're not a big fan of Matt Hancock, Philippa. <laughs> Well, I have often found Matt to uh, appear quite flippant um, when we're doing sessions in the House of Commons. I think he thinks of it as a little bit of sport. Sometimes if you watch him and John Ashworth, uh, it's like watching ping pong. And yet we're actually discussing, even at normal times around the NHS, we are talking about things that affect people's life, death, disability, survival. And and so to either have non-answers or flippant answers, um, I I find quite uh, difficult to deal with, I have to say. Um, But I think here, I think that while we could have accessed many of these pieces, the Brexit ideology, we cannot ask the EU for help. We cannot be part of these things because we're proving that we are taking back control. I think that definitely has been in the way and and that, yes, we are in transition, but I do not think the UK government were willing to utilise the services they could still have access from the EU. That's quite a serious charge, I would suggest. Tamara, would you say, would you, without necessarily backing it up, would you say you, you've seen evidence that would support that, that the, the ideology has perhaps uh, infected the approach? I haven't looked at that particular question. Um, what, what I've been trying to think about is how health will play out in the future relationship and the negotiations. What, well, um, it's the future relationship. I mean, come on, there's, no, there's not going to be a deal by the end of the year, is there? I mean, this so, is talk. Well, let, I mean, let's 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 um, step back for for a minute, James. So so Parliament is scrutinising to some extent the um, the negotiations and, and the European Scrutiny Committee has, is actually looking at the EU's mandate, the EU's um, proposed, well, negotiating mandate and their proposed agreement. Mm. And from the point of view of the Health and Social Care Committee, which has been outlined in, in a letter by its chair to the European Scrutiny Committee, the, the position of health in the future relationship is really problematic because health is not one of those fundamental agreed values, motherhood and apple pie. You know, we all agree on this, that this is a no brainer. Health does not make it to that list. And the consequence of health not making it to that list in the way that the, negoti- that the negotiation is going and the way that the future relationship is being constructed means that all sorts of things that will allow for or would allow for future cooperation between the UK and the EU at a granular level. So, for instance, agency cooperation between the European Medicines Agency 
and um, the, H the, the MHRA, those things won't be able to be included because the EU will construct them as part of be as being part of the internal market. Actually, there's a really, really big thing here that uh, the Health and Social Care Committee has picked up um, and that our parliament has picked up, which we in the health community or stakeholders in the health community need the government to run with. So, hang on, what are we, what are we saying here? That, right, so, <laughs> first of all, I would suggest there is limited chance of there being a deal by the end of the year because everyone's too busy with COVID-19. But are you saying even without COVID-19, if you like, the chances of getting a deal that includes health would be slim, would be uh, unlikely? What, what, what are we saying here? No, would be doable. But, but health has to make it there. And I actually think that COVID-19 increases the chances of health making it <laughs> okay. there. Because remember that it's also in the EU's interest to collaborate with the UK on things. You know, we have an excellent science base here, for instance. Right, hang on. So you're saying that the, the practicalities of the coronavirus crisis make a deal including health more likely. But to what extent is ideology going to get in the way of that? Well, that yeah, that's that's the 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 fact that's the critical factor, isn't it? And you have quite a lot of very different positions on this. Um, so Tim Bale's piece in the Financial Times, for instance, it basically sets out why ideology is going to get in the way of anything practical or sensible. Um, I'm not sure what Philippa thinks about this though, because she, she's much closer to to the, the way that the government is thinking. Oh, I'm not sure that I'm that close. Um, but, um... <laughs> I mean, back in uh, in the campaign in 2016, all of my campaigning was actually to try to point out to people the health benefits we got from the EU because it just didn't make it over the horizon in the debate at all. You know, whether it's you using your EHIC card when you're on holiday, which even allows people on dialysis to go on holiday and arrange dialysis. These people won't be able to afford to travel anywhere now you know joint research um the workforce that is here the people we're out clapping on a thursday night whether nhs or social care who actually come uh, from other parts of europe you know the medicines we import i mean just so many aspects including the ema um, and i tried to raise those and i remember on the health and social care committee when i was on it and at one point when tamara was uh, working with us you know the issue was that the then health secretary uh, Jeremy Hunt wasn't part of the sort of Brexit inner circle or cabinet it was like they weren't thinking about the impact of Brexit on health and I think that has been an issue all the way through but now we're talking a government that wants a Canada type deal which is a long long way from the eu and the single market and the problem is if you're going to do joint research if you are going to have central drug licensing as we have through the ema it has to be underpinned legally the data sharing is critical to that so there's all sorts of things that unfortunately do take you back to the very legalistic rule-based system of the single market to then allow you to build all these other bits on top. And, and I think they would be difficult, even if you had the will to do them. It sounds like you're agreed that whatever we get, whether it is in December, 
or whether it, there is some sort of extension and it, there's a deal next year, or even if I suppose if there's no deal, obviously, we're going to end up with a poorer uh, relationship with Europe in terms of health uh, and you know cooperation over health. That seems a given, yeah? Yes, every Brexit is bad for health. So, so they, I mean, we, we've done clear modelling of that, published it in The Lancet several times. Every Brexit is bad for health. No deal Brexit, much worse. So no relationship at the end of transition, that's much worse for health than some kind of relationship, even if it's Canada. There, there cannot be, right, here's the thing, right, though, there cannot be no deal now, right? I mean, the, the... There, there can be no deal, no deal two. All right, so yeah. No deal two is you get to the end of transition and there is no legal relationship in place between the UK and the EU. Almost everything that we said about no deal one applies to no deal yeah. two. Not everything, because we've had, we and the EU have had a bit of time to do some contingency planning. All right. But practically, the Prime Minister just went on telly last week and said, I nearly died and a Portuguese fellow called Lewis saved my life. I mean, surely the very fact that he, he focused on Lewis, the Portuguese chap, shows that there can't be no deal. They're gonna, he, he clearly must have some deal in, in mind, surely. You, James, the Home Office is currently working on the rules that'll apply to people like Lewis. He's obviously already here and, you know, we hope he applies for settled status and gets it. But the the social care workers who are out on the absolute front line of this epidemic do not qualify. Future generations of them will not be able to come. There are parts of the Highlands in Scotland where 30% of care workers are from Europe. Uh, a lot of Europeans, particularly within health and social care, are attracted to the islands and the wilderness of, of Scotland. So they are absolutely critical. From our point of view, they're actually critical to the structure of our society because our working age population is falling. So we have, we have a, an even more uh, kind of basic problem with this. But that, that work in the Home Office around immigration and around setting levels and what people have to pay, that's all still going ahead. And yet we're in the middle of people from Europe and indeed elsewhere working to save the rest of us. So the idea that in nine months when everything's cooled down and everyone's forgotten Thursday night clapping and whatnot, the idea that all of a sudden that'll change, I'm afraid I, I don't share your confidence in that at all. Hi, Arnand here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk, and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now. Tamara, do you think there's a situation in which, um, you know, this time next year, everyone goes, oh, blimey, that was, a, that was a thing, that coronavirus, that was not very pleasant. And it showed, um, you know, all the, the difficulties in, around in terms of health and Brexit. Uh, so let's just rejoin the EU. I think it depends a bit on what happens with the EU as well. I think it's quite difficult to answer that question totally in the abstract. So there's one possible post-COVID-19 future for the EU, which is that the EU goes through further disintegration. 
because it isn't able to capitalise on the benefits of sharing and pooling resources, um, largely because of a, a dynamic between the north and the south of the of the EU uh, that we had with the with the eurozone crisis. So that's that's one possible dynamic that you'd need to factor in in order to answer your in order to answer your question. I suppose what we could say with some certainty is when the rejoin the EU campaign is started, whenever that might be, might not be for another 10 years, but I still suspect there'll be one somewhere down the road. Um, health will play a bigger part in their campaign than it did in 2016. Well, I think health played a huge part in 2016. Don't you remember the bus? Well, so yeah, there was right. a huge amount of ignorance yeah. yes. about health, in fact. <laughs> So yes. instead of listening to people like Philippa, who actually know about the effects of EU membership on health, or talking to charities like Cancer Research UK, whose work is done, you know, largely with European partners, because that's how many you need, how many partners you need to have a, a sufficient pool, particularly for, for uh, rare cancers and so on. Instead of talking to people who actually know about it, you know, people were beguiled by the the notion that leaving the EU somehow would mean more money for the NHS. So, I, and, I, and our research shows that although many people understood that that, that statement was a bullshit, uh, you know, was, not, you know, and everybody knew that it wasn't literally true, mm. but they were also somehow drawn to it because it played into a narrative about how people understand the way that um, politics and economics works. So they think about politics and economics, economics in particular, as if it were a household. Mm, yeah. And they don't think about the UK as being in the EU. They think about the EU as being a separate thing. And that's the thing that the British media has done all along. The British media has never used the word us of the EU. It mm. always uses them. So, so I, I actually think health was really important to the referendum debate in a different way, in a, in yeah. a, in a non-expert in, informed way. And, and our um, research with, with people in the north of England and Northern Ireland post-Brexit uh, shows us that that, that bus message had a, a, a very important ripple effect, even though many people, you know, most people who we talked to understood that it wasn't true literally. <laughs> they were still drawn to it in in, a, in an odd in an odd way. It's an edit. Someone said something boring or illegal. You'll never know. If Philip is on the podcast, we have to bring up the issue of the SNP and Scottish independence. Uh, but we're going to sort of squeeze it in at the end, not because it's not a huge issue, but because the focus right now has to be on um, coronavirus and, and Brexit and all that. But, I mean, the obvious question, Philip, I mean, you're talking about working across borders uh, and what you lose by leaving a union, and yet you campaign for Scottish independence. Can you, ex that looks like uh, a disconnect. Can you explain that one? Uh, well, not at all. I mean, if we had become an independent country, if we'd won the referendum in 2014, we would still have been working with Ireland, Wales uh, and England as neighbours. I mean, that would have been obvious to still work to cooperate with each other. But Scotland doesn't have the right to um, join in the EU procurement of ventilators or anything else. And, you know, the idea that, um, you know, this is all kind of nice handholding and whatnot. I mean, I have real issues with how this has been led from Westminster, how it's been led by the UK government, the policy that's been taken. And because of the four nation approach, 
obviously to some extent the devolved governments are limited in what they can do. Um, if we'd been an independent country with our own currency, our own central bank, we'd have been doing the same financial support that the UK government is doing. I mean, this isn't money that's down the back of the sofa. This is all on tick. Uh, this is all going to be in the national debt. And that's the same as countries like Denmark and elsewhere. So you would still be looking at cooperating with each other. But for us, we see the being equals at the top table in Europe as a better deal for Scotland than frankly having very little influence in Westminster which is what we have at the moment. Um, Tamara I mean it's a bit of a bit of a uh, <laughs> hospital pass as they say uh, do you want to get involved in Scottish independence I mean do you do you have a view on whether Scotland would be better or worse place to deal with a pandemic if it was independent? I don't have a direct view on that but I think it is worth remembering that in the constitutional settlement for the United Kingdom health and public health is supposed to be devolved to Scotland and to Wales and to Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, so we actually don't have a constitution that's fit for purpose here either. Uh, uh, you know, if we had an, uh, what I call when I'm talking to my students, a normal constitution, there would be ways, legal ways for Scotland to be able to say, um, no, th this aspect is a devolved power and therefore we want to take this path. Um, universal minimum income might be one of the things or a different immigration um, policy might be another one. Uh, we don't have that kind of constitution in the UK, and, and I think that makes us weaker as, as a, a country in terms of, um, in terms of, of managing conflict within mm. a, a state that is made up of several nations. But is it, is it the case that actually you're better to either say, OK, you know, we don't do, I'm being sort of extreme, but you say we don't do any devolution and it's all handled out of Westminster would be perhaps better than what we have now. Or you say we have full devolution, home rule, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, as you say, what you just said, you know, you, you know, Edinburgh would have much more freedom to, to do as it wishes. Um, but it, with, it's with the, not oh. for me, it's not an either or. So you could have more or less devolution. It's to do with how do you settle the differences? And at the moment, there are no legal ways of settling the differences. It's only done through political processes. And that means that essentially there's a hegemony of England. It's intergovernmental relations. Yeah, but if you if you look at the at the end of the independence referendum, the promise in essence for Devo Max, which didn't. Uh, materialize at all. If you look at Germany, which is a federal country, they have a constitutional court. If the federal government were trampling on the toes of the lender, there is actually a procedure for how you deal with that. One of the things we fought to get in the Scotland Act was to protect the powers of the Scottish Parliament such as they are. And yet in the Supreme Court, they decided that the Sewell Convention is meaningless and what we have as part of Brexit is 24 areas that have been devolved to Holyrood for 20 years. The ultimate control, the design of the frameworks will now be at Westminster. And that includes things like public procurement. Um, that includes things like fishing and agriculture, environment, etc. And these are things that were devolved. And people are very anxious about that, particularly around the the public procurement and what that might mean in future post-Brexit trade deals um, about Westminster being able to set the terms for how much the NHS or health 
is in a trade deal or not in a trade deal. So in actual fact, yes, health is devolved. There's lots of bits of it that aren't. But health is much more than the NHS. Health is much more things like social security and social justice. And these things we do not control the levers of. I don't want to be overly cynical, but politically, it's worked out quite well for the SNP in the sense that there wasn't going to be an India ref this year anyway. There's not going to be another one before next year's Scottish elections. Um, so it gives, a, it gives an excuse to, to kick it down the road this year uh, and revisit it after the Scottish elections, as was going to happen anyway. Well, that might well have been going to happen because obviously uh, Westminster was refusing to allow us to make the choice. Um, you know, I don't find that terribly respectful either. Um, you know, it should be for the people who live here in Scotland to decide what their future is. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Let's just finish up with the recommendations. We're talking about Brexit. How would you understand Brexit? What would you recommend? Uh, you know, whatever it might be, book, film, uh, article, whatever. Um, where should we go? Tamara, I, you, you, you said what you were going to recommend, but I've forgotten what it was. Sorry. What, what's your recommendation? So for people who want to understand Brexit and health, um, our Health Governance After Brexit project has a film that has just been launched. It was launched just before the travel restrictions and the lockdown happened um, in Belfast. And we're going to make it available um, on a restricted basis, but to anybody who's interested on the Internet very soon. The film was made by Shoutout UK and it's called Brexit Health and Me. Um, Philippa, what would you recommend? I'm afraid I can't recommend anything that leads you to actually understanding Brexit because I simply don't. Um, I, I think probably for me, Tim Shipman's All Out War would be uh, as, as useful as anything else. find a link to the trailer for that film that Tamara mentioned on the great big long list of recommendations on my website which is james-miller.com uh, you can also contact me there or on twitter at political yeti is my handle uh, if you want to get in touch with the uk and changing europe to discuss any of the points in that podcast and there was a few contentious comments and views in there not that that is a bad thing, as long as we all disagree well. Then uh, you can get the UK and Changing Europe on Twitter at UK and EU, or their website is UK and EU.ac.uk. Uh, do visit the website because there's lots of new stuff on there. They're pivoting slightly to deal with the COVID 19 crisis and look at its impact. Uh, not just on Brexit, but on politics more widely. Uh, and you can find the Isolation Insight events there. They're doing new uh, webinars uh, that you can watch and listen to. Uh, the last one, the first one, was uh, about how Labour will oppose in this interesting political landscape. And it had a very good lineup and is well worth an hour of your locked down time. Uh, this has been the Brexit Breakdown from the UK and Changing Europe, supported by King's College London, funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. The music has once again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. I've been James Miller. Come back in a couple of weeks for another episode. And in the meantime, stay safe. Goodbye. Goodbye.